Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Here at Promo Kitchen, we are proud to be partners with and members of PPAI, the sponsor of today's episode. Today's Promo Kitchen podcast is brought to you by Promotional Products Workweek, which takes place from May the 23rd to May the 27th this year. Promotional Products Workweek is an industry-wide celebration dedicated to increasing awareness, building your business, and uniting our entire industry with one mission, one purpose, and one voice. So from May the 23rd to the 27th, get together with your team, your peers, and your community to meet and greet, serve your community, advocate for the industry, and celebrate your customers and clients during Promotional Products Workweek. For more information, check out ppai.org slash events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of CommonSkew, and I'm joined by Kirby Hossaman, president of Hossaman Marketing and Communications in beautiful downtown Coshocton, Ohio. In 2001, when I was relatively new to the industry, I attended an education session at the PPPC show with today's guest, Cliff Quicksell. It was a transformative moment for me as I was challenged by Cliff to see the bigger creative picture as it pertained to promotional product sales. I will always remember that class and the several others I attended in subsequent years as key to my development as a professional in this industry. While Cliff is certainly a household name in this industry, his bio is well worth recounting. Cliff Quicksell Jr. has been involved in the promotional products and sportswear industries for the last 33 years. During his tenure, he has been a mainstay on the education circuit at PPAI, ASI, and several regional associations. Those who have attended his sessions describe a man of boundless energy and enthusiasm for creative promotional product sales. For more than 27 years, Cliff has been speaking training and consulting internationally to associations and national business groups on more effective ways to market themselves and their products and services. Cliff has consulted for several blue chip industry companies such as I Promote You, Fruit of the Loom, Brown and Bigelow, AIA, Geiger, and Snugs USA, to name a few. Cliff has been the recipient of numerous industry awards, Recognized by PPAI for creativity, he has won the prestigious PPAI Golden Pyramid Award 23 times. Yes, 23 times. That's not a typo. He has received PPAI's Ambassador Speaker of the Year Award six consecutive years. He has also been recognized by Counselor Magazine as one of the top 50 most influential people in the promotional products industry. Cliff is also a prolific writer having been published in every recognizable trade publication in our industry. And now we are honored that he adds Promo Kitchen to that list. We are privileged to have you here with us today, Cliff. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate that. Thank you. So, Cliff, I want to start off with a fun one. 
you're a sales guru. Is Cliff Quicksell like a made-up name or what? Where did that come from? Kirby, you and I talked about that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> no, actually, that is my born given name. I'm a junior, actually, you know, and that it, it's been a, I guess it's been a, a nemesis and a curse at times, but definitely it's a talking point. You know, it's it's interesting when I will speak at most of the shows just as an icebreaker, I'll ask the question, you know, I'll kind of you get, you know, hello, my name is such and such, and I'll say, you know, how many of you out there, now be honest with me, are wondering, is that really his last name? And I guarantee you 90% of the audience put their hands up. A lot of people think that I've fabricated it. But no, it is actually mine. I'm born and raised. <laughs> I love it. Well, I can tell you, thinking back to that time almost 15 years ago when I when I was attending the class, that what jumped out at me was your name. So, But you certainly delivered the goods. So Cliff, you've been in the business for 33 years, certainly a veteran. Tell us how you got your start in this crazy industry. Well, it was interesting. I was working for Anheuser-Busch in sales, and I met this gal who's actually still in the industry. She's a, she's a lovely gal named Becky, and at the time, I had a martial arts school in College Park where I went to college, and I was doing this, and she and I were working her, her dad's business together, and she decided, uh, I won't get into the nuts and bolts of it, but she decided one day that she needed help, and I said, well, look, I can forward you as many leads as you need. So I wound up starting to give her my hospitality leads, and it got so overwhelming that she asked me if I wanted to start working there, and I did. So I took a $13,000 a year cut in salary, started working with her, and we built the business up pretty nicely. And then while we were dating at the time, but she then decided that she didn't, I guess, want to date me anymore. So um, it wasn't a good fit for me to be there. So I decided to start my own company, and I did. And nearly went bankrupt five times during that period of time and the learning curve was very steep. I learned a lot, I failed a lot at the time, decided about 11 years after I'd started my company that I really wasn't going to stay in the business to be honest with you and then so I liquidated the business and I had a gal up in Baltimore that actually asked me if I wanted to go work for them so I did started back up working for them and I left there and I was, um, I was actually speaking in Australia and the Headwear Stockist Group that owns Headwear USA here in the U.S., I said to them, why don't you have a presence in the U.S.? And they said, we just don't. I said, well, if you ever decide you want to, I'd love to run the company. Mm -hmm. So the next morning, they called me up and said, if you want to do it, let's do it. So we sat down. The next day, we negotiated a deal. I came back here. Literally, within three months, we had a warehouse. We had a catalog. We had... Uh, over a million dollars worth of inventory in a 20,000 square foot facility and I became a partner and CEO of the US division and had that for about three years and then decided it wasn't a good fit for me anymore so I left there sold my interest back to the company and started with Jody Friedman she and I started a company out in California called Authentic Plush I was there for a couple of years and then I decided to leave that company and then I just thought, you know what, I just want to do consulting and speaking and writing. And I started doing that and have been now for the past eight or ten years. Yeah. It's been great. That's interesting. You know, what's fascinating about your story is that you have been on all sides of the fence in the industry. You as a distributor and then later as a supplier. And you've had successes and, you know, admitted failures in, in both of those areas. What side of the fence do you prefer being on? 
or, or did you prefer being on, distributor or supplier? Well, if I had to pick between those two, I would probably say, you know, it's hard to say, Mark. You know, it really is hard to say because there's aspects of both that I really enjoy. I mean, I guess why I've gravitated to being a consultant and a speaker is because I love sharing information. Nothing gratifies me more than to have somebody come up to me and I'll give you an example. I was speaking at Expo and a woman came in the back of the room and it was one of those packed sessions and I walked by and I said, I remember you. And she took my hand and she said, I have to tell you something. I listened to you last year and you changed my life. Mm. And when I heard that, I mean, a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people, you know, think that that's a little bit trite or whatever, but I'm telling you, that's the thing that I live for is really trying to help people succeed at what they do. So from the supplier side, I really like helping people succeed and do well. On the distributor side, I enjoyed helping my customers. I think there's a lot more drama being the distributor right. on that side than there is on the supplier side because, you know, you have so many personalities that you're dealing with. And I think a lot of that would be like my fault because I wasn't really as Back in the day when I started, I really didn't understand the power of being focused mm. and being, you know, devoted to a core set of vertical markets that you really, your, your name could become viral in. And when I did that, the dynamics of my business changed dramatically. So I would say that there's a little bit of both, but less drama on the supplier side than on the distributor side. But I like drama too, so it's all good. <laughs> like, you know, Cliff, to, to your point, it, it kind of leads me into a question, and like, because you've been on both sides of the fence, and I think sometimes in, no matter what our career is, whether we're in this industry or any, you know, we need to recreate ourselves, and it sounds like you've sort of done that a couple different times in your career, on beyond different sides of the industry, into your speaking. What advice would you give somebody who's kind of standing at that crossroads and saying, I need to recreate myself? Well, I mean, look, you know, the three of us are really big into branding and making sure that we, you know, we have a, a name and that we're always working that. And I think sometimes with people, they have a tendency to get comfortable. And, you know, I remember listening to Seth Godin reading one of his blogs, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, you know, I think once we become comfortable, we become very staid in what we do. I mean, look at some of the and I'm not going to, I wouldn't cite anyone in particular, but look, look at some of the, the logos that we see in our market space. And look at some of the terminology that people are still using. And they're not realizing that a lot of the stuff that they're saying and doing is so antiquated. And it, believe it or not, it does resonate with the audience. So I'm a big believer that people need to be looking at their brand, I would say, really giving it a hard look every year. Is it consistent? Is it saying what I needed to say? Is it resonating with the audiences that I'm targeting? Uh, what about the colors that we're using? Are the colors old? Are they, are they still fashionable? Do they resonate with people? You know, it, and if we're not doing that, I think we're doing ourselves a huge, huge disservice. In fact, I, I did a seminar at the expo called Your Brand Speaks Volumes, What Story Does Yours Tell? And it was a very interesting the responses that I got from people, they were just like, you know, I never, ever, ever thought about how my brand looks and, you know, how people perceive it. And it was interesting when I did the research on that, some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies, you know, Fortune 100 companies, if you look at it, they're constantly doing things like that. Apple's probably made 
10 to 15 different brand changes since it's been in existence. Hewlett-Packard, IBM. Just jumping in there, Cliff, I'm super curious about that comment you're making about the branding challenges that a number of people in our industry experience. When you're doing those classes, why do you feel that creating a brand for one's business is not something top of mind? Like that surprises me, but what are you hearing out there? Like, why is that the case? You know, I can only speculate, Mark, I think at some level, but like I said, I think that people, and this is no degradation against the people that don't do it, but I mean, I think what happens is that like you and myself and Kirby and Danny Rosen, I mean, we'll all think marketing, we all think branding, we're all thinking that top level thing. And I think what happens is a lot of people just get caught up in the minutia of what they're doing. And it happened to me too with my website. My website was horrible. I just kind of, it was like out of sight, out of mind type thing. And it wasn't until I had a customer cancel a speaking engagement on me because his partners didn't like the way my website looked. That was a heck of a wake up call for me. So I just think that people get caught up, especially within this industry. I think we all will, the three of us will agree that there's a lot of complexities in terms of making sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And I think some of those other things that should be important get overlooked because of that. Yeah, and I, I tell you what, Cliff, I think sometimes, as you pointed out, sometimes we get tied in with the status quo. And the other thing I find is occasionally I just get stuck in a rut when it comes to creativity, right? And so other than having a client cancel <laughs> a speaking engagement, what suggestions do you have when we get stuck in a rut? What suggestions to get your creative juices flowing? Wow, that's a that's a good question. Well, you know what? I do a lot of things. I'm not joking based on what we talked about early on, but I, I tell you, for me, I love to come up in my office at night, especially like my wife's a flight attendant, so when she travels, I have time at night, and I sit in my office, get a glass of red wine, and I just go through magazines, or I will go to the internet, and I'll go to Google Images, and I'll, I'll just put in a topic, and I'll look at the images that are there. I do a lot of reading, a lot of creative reading. I'll challenge myself to things. I have a, believe it or not, I have a one of those James Brown, you know the fish that when you press the button at Christmas it sings songs? Well, I have a statuette <laughs> of James Brown that actually sings, I feel good. And I don't know what it is, but I have it sitting in my office, and sometimes when I uh, when I just I just I just hit that button and that thing cranks up, I don't know, it just changes the endorphins of the way I'm thinking, and that along with just thinking a little bit differently, you know, about things. It, it's interesting, Kirby. Somebody will call me up and they'll say, um, "Cliff, I need some help on getting a product for a person at the trade show," and I'm very candid. I said, "You know, I'm not trying to be smug. But I'm not the guy for that." I, I didn't even walk the show floor at Expo. That's how terrible it was. I was so busy. I said, I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't know what product to suggest. But if you want to know how to drive traffic to your trade show booth and how we do it creatively, now we can talk. Mm. So for me, and I, I think it's just thinking a little bit differently. You know, there's a great book that I love by a guy named Roger Von Oak. It's called A Whack on the Side of the Head. And he talks in his book, he has actually two, that one and one called A Kick in the Seat of the Pants. But they're, for your listeners, it's a brilliant book if you want to think differently about creativity. And one of the things that he talks about is like comparing two unlike objects. And I used to do brainstorming sessions like this with my customers. And 
he would say, if you take a cat and a refrigerator, what parallels can you draw between the two? What are the similarities? And it's interesting, when you get in a room with people that are supposedly creatives, and you ask that question, they can't come up with an answer. Because I think what holds people back, and we had talked about this, is fear. I think people are afraid to make a comment for fear that it's going to sound dumb, stupid, or goofy. Mm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I think like what Henry Ford say, in order to have a great idea, you have to have a lot of good ideas. So I throw as much of that stuff out there as possible. But getting back to that example, my daughter asked me when she was 11, it was funny, she said, Dad, uh, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I speak. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I go and I talk to people. And she goes, you, you mean to tell me people pay you to talk? I said, yeah. She goes, I have to get a job like that. So it was kind of kind of <laughs> cute. But when, I, when she asked me what was creativity, I told her it was thinking a little bit different. And I used that example that Von Oak uses in his book about comparing two unlike objects. And I said, like a cat in the refrigerator. And literally, my 11-year-old, she's 26 now, but my 11-year-old gave me 15 answers in 10 seconds. Wow. And it just showed me the power of children, the way they think. Mm. Uh, you have to think like a child. And it was interesting, I read a statistic that said, from birth to age six, 96% of the ideas that children have are original and creative. But by the time they get to age 40, it drops to 4%. Mm. And it's because wow. of things like that. It's that, that fear of being rejected or being made to feel stupid or anything like that. So my suggestion is try to think like a kid. Be like a kid. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And that creative flow is great. And well, the other thing I would suggest is partner with people of like mind. You know, like I would have no better thrill than to sit down with you, Kirby, and just sit down with a group of people that are of like mind mm -hmm. and just brainstorm a creative idea. What could come out of that is just absolutely staggering. You know, it's so interesting hearing what you're talking about, Cliff, and, and it brings me back to the Seth Godin keynote at Expo this past year. And what's such a constant theme running throughout the keynote was this fear that all of us have about standing out and about looking stupid and wanting to please others. And your point demonstrates that exactly. One of the most memorable quotes in that keynote was that the inventor of the ship was also the inventor of the shipwreck. And so that's maybe similar to the Henry Ford comment where he talks about you, you need to have a lot of good or even bad ideas before you really get that great one. And so I that's think exactly that's right. also true. And if you just think about even our industry, while there's certainly a lot of amazing things in our industry, I think that one of the real challenges that we face is this me too environment where you've got distributors that undercut one another because they're going for the sale, or you have suppliers that are knocking one another off because one innovates and then 10 other people go and find the same factory in China and knock it off for a lower price. And to me, that feels like such a profound race to the bottom and it doesn't help the industry get any better. So I think your message is an important one. What would you tell a young entrepreneur looking to get into this industry? So someone, let's say in their early 20s, they come and talk to you, they're looking for career advice, and they say, I want to get into the promotional products industry. What do you tell them? Well, first of all, I'd ask why. <laughs> you crazy? <laughs> no, I don't. I, don't <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean it from that vantage point, but no, I would want to know wh why have you chosen this? 
Okay. And depending on that answer, I might have a, a different response. But I think that if somebody, if they said they were fascinated by it, I would suggest to them strongly, and I say this a lot, when you get into the industry, there's a lot of people that are going to be willing to give you advice, and which is great. But I say ingest as much as you can, but be mindful of what you digest. Because what you take into your system and you swallow is the thing that you're going to live by. Like the adage that 10% of something is better than 0% of nothing. I think that that is a very slippery slope and a very fast way to the bottom, as you put it. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, the thing is, this industry, and look, I respect the fact that the industry has created a coding system. But that coding system, everybody and their brother knows it. It's interesting. Go to Google and put in promotional product discount codes. It's the fifth thing that comes up. Some girl put it on there and explains the whole coding system. Yeah. But now all of a sudden you get a savvy kid like my son or daughter that are in their 20s, let's face it, that are our buyers now. My son was looking in there and asked me, he goes, Dad, in this catalog, what does this mean? He goes, I can find it, don't worry. And I mean literally found the discount codes on the web. Yeah. So this whole notion that we have to be relegated to sell us some coding system, it's just crazy. Yeah. I think that you know if people understand that they can be more than what the industry as a whole presents itself as, like they can be creative, they can be innovative, they can drive huge profit margins. They don't have to be relegated to an ADC PQR code. Yeah. They can write their own ticket, but they can't do that if they listen to people that say, you know, sometimes you have to go in at 10% and you can ooch up the margins later on. It just doesn't work. Right. It just, it, it never works. Yeah, you know, Cliff, it's interesting because I think that leads me to think about your role. I know, you know, you work with I Promote You now, and my guess is, and I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this, but you get to coach people. You get to help them build a smarter business. I assume I'm kind of right on that. And if, if that's the case, based on what you said about speaking earlier, what do you like best about that? What do you like best about that role of helping to be coach? As I indicated earlier, and you are right, I mean, part of my role consulting with I Promote You is I do work with the affiliates that want to work with me and help them grow their business, do their marketing, and all sorts of things like that. I mean, we've had some amazing success with that. But I love working with people that are open to the possibilities. And the people that are open to the possibilities I can tell you that they do remarkable work. I had a gal, for instance, that came to me two years ago, and she said, Cliff, I'm either going to close my business or I have to grow it, and I need your help. So we sat down and we worked out a plan. And here's the thing. People say to me all the time, oh, you're a great coach. You did that. I said, you know what? I'm a coach. I'm not playing the game. I'm coaching. You're the one that's got to get on the field. You're the one that has to do the work. And if you do it, you'll be successful. All I help is nudge you along a little bit. And this gal went from 150 grand in sales to $525,000 in sales by herself in less than two years. And she's won two pyramid awards in the last two years. And she's remarkably successful and remarkably profitable. So I think the rush for me is while I get paid to be a speaker, I get paid to do coaching, I'll make no bones about that. But the reality is the thing that I love about it is really seeing people succeed. I mean, it really does charge me up. Super cool. Cliff, there was something you said in one of your earlier responses 
about you being on the distributor side and facing bankruptcy or business collapse multiple times as you were growing that business. Hmm. I had a question and I wanted to make sure that I asked it to you because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast on the distributor as well as the supplier side. And I'm curious as to why you ran into trouble and what you learned from it and what you might have done differently or what advice you'd be giving to that entrepreneur. Maybe it's another way of asking that other question. So it's kind of a two, three parter question because I'm always fascinated by people who run into trouble and then how they then are able to get out of that trouble and then how they apply the learnings to another venture. Uh, That's a good question, Mark. I I think that I can say this kind of humbly now, arrogance and ego were the two things that got in my way. Right. And I learned a very hard lesson that it's important to be humble. It's important to educate yourself and not feel like you have all the answers. And when I started doing that and reaching out to people, I mean, look, I I mean, I was, to be honest with you, I was too young when I started this to have a business. I mean, it was my ego to say that I was president of my own company. Well, I couldn't even get out of my own way. I mean, if I had to do it all over again, and knowing what I know now, first of all, I would create a plan. And that's what I didn't have. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have a marketing plan. So I failed dramatically. And I think it was because of persistence and hard work that I didn't go under. But nonetheless, it was a struggle. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had to make the decision whether to put $2,400 down on the, the hats that I needed to run the job or pay my mortgage. Right. And I had not prepared myself properly for becoming an entrepreneur and being in business. I should have read more. I should have asked more questions. I should have reached out to people. And let me tell you something. I think that the three of us will agree that the majority of the people in this business are really, really good people, and they're and they're willing to give valuable input. Yeah. And I look back to people that I learned from, like Glenn Holt, God rest his soul, what a genuine, wonderful man, and so willing to share information. So I think I would have just listened more. Yeah, and I want to turn it over to Kirby in just a second here, but just as a quick follow-up point, I think that what's so interesting to me as you look at the landscape that we've got in this industry is that a lot of people in the promotional products industry are salespeople, which may explain some of the branding deficiencies or the focus less on branding and maybe more on just selling product. So I think there's that. I think we can explain it for that reason. But I also think what's interesting is the tools that are available today for entrepreneurially minded salespeople or whatever the case may be to go and start great businesses. There's so many more resources that are available today in 2016 than there were back in those days, Cliff, when you were having the challenges with your distributorship. So I think I'm very encouraged by the climate that we've created as an industry today and the resources that are available that I, I don't think it's necessarily super easy, but it's maybe easier now than it ever has been. So that's maybe just a comment I'd, I'd note. I think that's yeah. a fair comment for sure. I really appreciate your vulnerability there because I'll tell you, as an early entrepreneur, I was the same way. I had that if it's to be, it's up to me kind of mentality, and I missed opportunities to learn early on. I want to shift gears just a little bit and ask you a question because content marketing is kind of a huge buzzword, and it's something I believe in, certainly. You have been creating content for a long time, whether it's through blogging or speaking or, or whatever, and you've got a great blog, and I subscribe to that email. 
But for those who are kind of looking at it going, gosh, I'd like to do a blog, but where do I come up with topics? Where do you find the inspiration? It's a good question, Kirby. You know, like I said, I think that I involve myself a lot in reading, and I go to the Internet a lot, and you know, I have conversations like I'm having with you and Mark. And, you know, Mark just made some comment that just really I never even thought of, is that our industry is really made up of a lot of salespeople and not necessarily entrepreneurs, and that might explain the branding issue. And when I pick up on things like that, it gives me fodder for my content. I like to create content that's motivational in nature. I love telling stories. And I think that those type of things resonate with people. As you know with my blog that I have 30 Seconds to Greatness, I actually use famous quotes. And I basically extrapolate something from some business acumen that, that I can apply to that. And I will tell you that people seem to love that. So, again, it's the research that I do, the interviewing that I do, that kind of opens up a lot of doors like that. Cliff, I was just reading a post today online, and it was for a distributor that was lamenting how their client had just found a cheaper price for a project that she had quoted. I don't know any more details other than it was the dreaded, my client has found a cheaper price. I'm curious, what do you tell the salespeople that come to you? And I'm assuming some of them complain to you about how their clients have found lower prices. What would you tell them? <laughs> well, I encourage the people that I work with not to lead with the fact that they sell product. Yeah. I encourage them to lead with innovation and creativity. I always say this, innovation and creativity doesn't have an ABC code on it. Absolutely. And you can charge what you want. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we do sell product, we do sell awards, we do sell recognition, we do sell apparel, but, you know, like I said earlier, it, if somebody's out there just selling product, at the end of the day, I don't need that person if I'm a buyer, mm. right? I mean, I can get that on the web. It's easy. I remember I was speaking at Fruit of the Loom, and there was another speaker there with me, and I was complaining about the same issue, and it was interesting he said to me, he goes, Cliff, isn't that the buyer's job to level the playing field? And I went, wow, never looked at it that way. He said, so if I can look out there and I can say there's 10 people that have a C-handled white coffee mug, I'm in control. Yeah. He says, your job, if you want to be really good at what you do, is to make sure that they can't put you on that playing field. Yeah. And I'll never forget that. And so that's why I'm a believer that I believe it's more difficult, Mark, for people to sell up. Like they go into a customer that has a, an issue or they need to do a campaign. It's dip more difficult for the person that's just focused on selling product to be able to do that. Mm. But if your mindset is being able to solve problems, you know, ask the right questions, you may determine that the answer is a promotional product, but it might not be. I just had a situation with one of the folks that I work with regularly called me and, and I said, did you ever look at it in this vein? And she says, I didn't. Turns out that this opportunity has just multiplied by a huge margin. And I think it's, again, it's the way we go to market, the things we ask and things like that. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, where there's mystery, there's margin is, is a great statement. And I, I love what you said about it's the buyer's job to level the playing field. I think it's totally right. And most buyers, or I'd say all buyers, they're, they're taking the emotion out of the sale. They're simply looking at it. They're, in many cases, are 
punching numbers into spreadsheets. And that's great. That's their right to do so. And the more you can, you know, bedevil that process, so to speak, and make yourself stand out, I think the better. And that and that's super hard, right? And and I think, you know, going back to that branding discussion, I think the reason why that doesn't happen, I think to some extent it's because people are scared of looking silly and they don't want to stand out. I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing is that it also sometimes requires a financial investment in your brand, in your go-to-market that some people are hesitant to do. And I think that when, when you do take those risks, you will be on your own little island and you're going to be seen as maybe a little weird to the traditional purchasing manager that wants the price on the C-handle mug, but who cares about that guy? But for all the appropriate business, all the business that is looking for something a little bit more creative, you're going to be the only person there, which means you can charge whatever you want or within reason, of course. So I, I think it's such an important message, but I also understand why we run into these barriers, which is why one of the things we try to promote at Promo Kitchen is to take those risks and not be afraid to, to look a little bit different. I would ask you this. I would venture to say that the marketing person that's asking for the price on the coffee mug has no idea that that distributor has the capacity or capability to do anything other than that. Yes, I agree. And so whose fault is that? I mean, it's like if you're not articulating and engaging your customer about the things that you can do and only selling product, then that's where you're going to be stuck. I think that one of the greatest things about our industry, Cliff, and one of the worst things about our industry is its size and profile. And so let me tell you what I mean by that. So on one hand, it's super easy to get into the promotional products business. There's a huge amount of awareness for what it is that we sell. Virtually every company, organization, nonprofit, sports team, whatever, has at some level a need for a brand or a product with a brand on it. So you're not going in selling rocket science. You're going in selling something that the market already needs and demands to the tune of $20 billion a year. So talk about getting into an amazing business. That's awesome. But I think the deal with the devil that we make, and I certainly share this with my colleagues at Right Sleeve, is that despite how easy it is, it means that there's scores of competition, barriers to entry are very, very low, and also the buyer has been trained to think from a product standpoint. They're not trained to think about anything creative when it comes to promotional products. They're thinking for the most part about something they saw on a website, on some catalog that has been produced and white labeled by one of the big suppliers that's been sent out by tons of distributors. And that's how the market's been trained. So it's very, very challenging to break out of that. I cringe, and I'd love to hear your story about this. At any cocktail party, whenever I say that I'm in the promotional products industry, I'll tell you seven times out of 10, I'll get some guy that I'm speaking to or a woman that'll say, oh, the branded product business, what's the hottest thing available out there? And I'll go, I don't care. I don't know. I haven't walked the show in a year, right? And I, I hate being pigeonholed into that. But then, of course, they then look at you like a circus clown to say something really, really fantastic that will get them super excited. And then they'll move on to the next conversation. I think that does a disservice to our industry. 
and it should not be about the product. It should yeah. be more about other things. So, anyways, I'm off my soapbox, but <laughs> that that's what I have to say. To no, you. no, I I agree 100 percent with what you're saying. When I'm in those opportunities to talk to people like that, I basically will share with them. I will tell them that what I do is not about selling product. I do things a little bit more innovative and creative, and I'll share a case study that I'd have. Yeah. And but I understand what you're saying. It is a disservice. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So, you know what? I, uh, I'm just taking a look at the time. And as usual, these things go by really, really quickly. We want to um, make sure that we've got an opportunity, Cliff, to give you the last word. But we'll get to that in just one second here. I've got one other question I wanted to ask you. And uh, I'm really curious as to what your response is. So it's well known that our industry workforce is aging while end clients are getting younger. How do you counsel the more tenured industry professionals to sell to a younger generation of end clients? I think that the thing that I'm always trying to encourage people to do is to understand that however they're talking with someone, it has the, the, the conversation, the messaging, all has to be relevant. And if it's not, then it's irrelevant in a nutshell. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of people that just that's going out of their comfort zone again. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And then sometimes people get jogged back into it, and then other people say, wow, it's, it's too late for me, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I think, I think it's great advice. And at the end of the day, it's, I, I think, a huge challenge and also a huge opportunity in this industry to, to make sure that we're speaking the right language of our buyers. And I could also say the other thing, if you're a 20 something professional and you're happen to be selling to a marketing manager in his or her fifties or sixties, then you need to make sure that you can speak their language, just like it would be in the other uh, scenario. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to being open to change and learning new things and, you know, thinking young. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.